Hi, I'm Jim Calloway. And I'm Sharon Nelson. This is the 41st edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Today, our topic is contemplating the future of law practice. Well, Sharon, I hope you came well equipped today for this podcast. I've brought my crystal ball with me, and I also brought a deck of playing cards, but now I'm told those aren't the kind we use to tell the future. <laughs> yeah, wrong wrong deck. <laughs> well, it, 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 is, it is not easy predicting the future, Jim. You know, I once saw this wonderfully doctored photo of President Bush and his folks huddled around a Ouija board trying to figure out where the economy was going, and we all know how well that worked. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sharon, as you know, one of the books about the future of law practice that still has everyone talking is The End of Lawyers by Richard Susskind. We were both fortunate enough to hear him discuss his ideas at ABA Tech Show, and his analogy of the bespoke model, which means in British, I guess, custom-made, of production of legal services evolving through standardized to systematized to prepackaged, well, that makes sense to me. While the practice of law is much more than filling out forms or using boilerplate documents, we all have to admit that there are some aspects of the production of legal documents that are more routine and standardized. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that Professor Susskind would want us to point out that his book title ends with a question mark. So he's not so much predicting the end of lawyers as pointing out that there are powerful forces that could impact our future if the legal profession fails to react and adjust. Our profession has been adjusting to technology in the law office for some time now. It's really hard to imagine a lawyer practicing today without using computer or digital research. In fact, if you ask me what the most disruptive force in law has been over the last generation, my answer lies in a single word, technology. And one of the fallouts of that disruption has been that much of our work has indeed become commoditized. As the professor points out, nothing can replace the role of trusted advisor, but we still have to accept that technology has changed the practice of law as our grandparents knew it. Certainly, and nobody that knows us, I think, would be surprised that we believe that technology's impact on the practice of law will continue to be huge. E-filing is mandatory in federal courts now, and the states will be moving in that direction, and that'll make a significant difference in the way lawyers practice law when all of their pleadings are filed and received electronically. You know, you may not even know this, Jim, but John and I are working now with Virginia's advisory board on e-filing, which is expected to be statewide here in several years, and I think we have counterparts in many other states as well. And and, and apart from e-filing, e-discovery and and computer and cyber forensics are kind of the unique areas of expertise of my corporation, Sensei Enterprises. We interface with technology on an ongoing basis in our work, and believe me, it's hard to keep up. E-emails were always the smoking guns, but with the advent of the smartphones, text messages are now a huge source of evidence. And honestly, smartphones are computers that just happen to be able to make phone calls. So we've seen an explosion in smartphone evidence. And now we're dealing with electronic evidence in the cloud, data that's stored around the globe, and all kinds of issues with foreign languages, international restrictions on accessing and using electronic data, and a move to using artificial intelligence for data review. It's daunting to think how attorneys have had to come to grips with e-discovery issues in order to be litigators. It really is a sea change in the old style of oratory being the basis of trial practice. And, and when we look at the future, many knowledge workers who are at least paying attention should have experienced a nervous moment as they watched a herd of IBM's Watson beating the two Jeopardy champions recently. In fact, there's an attorney from Fairfield, Connecticut named Fred Urey 
who predicts that within a decade, there will likely be 10 to 40% fewer lawyers than there are today. And the rise of artificial intelligence and computer systems is one of the main factors he cites. And I think that that might be true. Certainly, we're overpopulating the uh, the United States with lawyers. We're just producing too many. But honestly, Jim, when we were watching Jeopardy, John was so excited uh, watching Watson that you would have thought that he programmed Watson himself. Um, but this is exactly what I was talking about. Artificial intelligence is one day going to rule how electronic evidence is reviewed, and the early form of that is now being called predictive coding, and it's rapidly gaining traction. So I think you're right. Well, to shift away from technology for just a second, and our listeners know we'll be back, as we worked on our book, How Good Lawyers Survive Bad Times, with our co-author, Ross Codner, I think we both had to wonder how much of the bad times for lawyers was a temporary bump in the road as the economy dipped for everyone, and how much was a true sea change in the legal profession? I guess it's hard to know, Jim. It really was the perfect storm, a lousy economy for sure, and and lawyers who had not adapted to a new landscape. The layoffs at larger law firms were staggering in 2008 and 2009. As of November 29, 2010, over 14,940 people had been laid off by major law firms. Now that's a, the, there's about 6,000 lawyers and over 9,000 staff since January 1, 2008. More than 12,000 people, again, it's a combo number, were laid off from law firms in calendar year 2009. And we've even had an additional 729 people laid off for major law firms so far this year. So we're, we're really not out of the woods. It's interesting that the large firms have taken the biggest hit. I think everybody agrees that they've been hurt the most. So you have to ask why. I think in some cases they're thinly capitalized. They had very limited reserves. They, they lost their lines of credit. Greed was a factor. Let me say that again. Greed in a major way. The failure to let go of the billable hour the failure to use technology to cut costs for their clients, and a, a general wishful thinking that things would stay as they were. They didn't, they won't, and those who refuse to adapt, improvise, and overcome are just inviting an extinction because too many law firms are doing exactly that, adapting, improvising, and overcoming. I think when we look at the, these issues, the question really is, what the law firm does to continue to be effective and profitable in the future. And personally, I believe a major answer is in perfecting and automating our systems of accomplishing work. A a solo practitioner from Guthrie, Oklahoma, showed me an interesting quote from the uh, recent book, Making It All Work, which is a sequel to Getting Things Done, or as it's known on the internet, GTD, by David Allen. But here's the quote. Studies have proven that the vast majority of all performance improvement is systemic. Additional motivation and intelligence only make a negligible difference in the long run. I think that's probably a discouraging quote to many. (laughs) I I do think most lawyers believe they can rely on their intelligence and working harder to overcome any obstacles, but there is a limit to the number of hours any human being can work, and truthfully, there has to be a life outside of work to make life worth living. So it's a different mindset to work on designing production systems, and, and that's a problem. Most lawyers just want to do legal work. The trick is getting them to see that systems investments will allow them to do the work they really love and to be competitive with other lawyers. I uh, mentioned to you this week that I just finished reading the book, The Checklist Manifesto, How to Get Things Done Right by Atul Gwande. And and there's a story in there I want to briefly relate to you. He was, uh, one of the risks of surgery is the lines delivering fluids in and out of the body have a risk of preventing, of 
delivering infection. And so they made a study and figured out there were only about seven or eight things that if you followed the seven or eight checklist, it really limited the ability of the lines to become infected. John Hopkins University agreed to implement these checklists and over the objection of the surgeons agreed that everybody in the surgical room, including the operating nurses, could call the surgeon and say, no, no, you touched your nose or no, that drape isn't sterile or whatever on this seven or eight point checklist. After one year, they reduced the infections post-surgical related to these lines from 11% of surgeries to zero. <laughs> so the point in keeping the list because you don't know how to do something, all the surgeons knew what was on the list and knew the things to do. The point is that good checklists allow us to do what we know how to do more quickly and more accurately. Well, as always, you know, taking your advice, I rushed right out and got the book. <laughs> <laughs> which is now now sitting in my briefcase, but I have, in fact, read a portion of it. And, and I do like it because I don't think any of us could survive without our task lists and things to do lists. And, and, and it is a form of a checklist just to have a task list. So if I could offer a practice tip of my own, I live and die by my tasks and outlook. The first thing I do every morning is look at the tasks that pop up. Some I know darn well aren't going to get done, so I push them off by days or weeks in advance. And some are more important to do today than others. What I do is I select the top six because that's how many the box holds, and and those <laughs> and those stay open on my monitor. John is laughing here. He has his own system. This is my system. My system works for me. D during the course of the day, the other things that I want to get done, of course, will pop up because I've snoozed them for two hours or four hours or whatever, and hopefully I've now gotten that first six done or some portion of them, and so they will join the top six, and, and they too will get done. Now, this kind of checklist regimentation really keeps me focused and as you well know Jim I never miss deadlines right <laughs> <laughs> that's our story and we're sticking to it <laughs> the, the idea of building these better more automated office production systems shouldn't really be viewed as a threat rather it's a way to free us from mundane repetitive work to concentrate on the more valuable creative problem solving that we all went to law school to do I'd much rather be helping a client or talking with them on the phone or in person about their problems than proofing a 30-page document for the fifth time because we're manually drafting it. Yeah, wouldn't we all? Uh, in addition to the challenging economic times and the greater implementation of technology in everybody's law office, there are a lot of marketing challenges and, and increased competition for lawyers. We now have CPAs doing things that were once considered the practice of law. We have some communities that have do-it-yourself typing services that are often run by former legal secretaries and even, and I've seen this too, former disbarred lawyers that are involved in creating legal documents for consumers. And we're all familiar with LegalZoom and other online legal forms services. You kind of invited me, Jim, um, as we were going through the script to take a moment of personal privilege, which I'll do. I don't have any problem with the provision of forms. You know, that's that's been established by the courts for a long time. But I do think that there is a problem with LegalZoom and others who created a legal decision tree, which is problematic because it fundamentally provides legal advice 
because it's a form of artificial intelligence, really. As an example, the average Joe has no idea what kind of business entity to create. So they follow a decision tree, which may or may not be wholly complete or accurate, but which takes the place of a lawyer's advice. It may work in the vast majority of cases, but as we all know, individual circumstances may dictate a different form, uh, a, a different result, a different kind of business entity. And that's why lawyers ask so many questions and try to form a complex picture of all of the issues before rendering advice. Now, for a basic will, these services might be just fine, but a complicated estate? I'd sure want a trusted advisor in my lawyer. Uh, wait a minute. What I really want first is a complicated estate, a really complicated estate. I'd like that problem, Jim. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Well, and, and document production, you know, documents are an important part of law practice, but internally, I think law firms just spend a lot of times on them when these expert systems are reaching the point where you can trust them and just have a final proofing. There's certainly custom and creative work where lawyers have to draft specific language to deal with a particular problem. But a lawyer dictating essentially the same letter over and over again and then paying them down in the transcription pool to type it makes less and less sense as we progress with technology. I agree with that, but do document assembly programs have proven very challenging for a lot of law firms, uh, even though the business logic of using those tools are, are past the point of argument. Current word processing software has powerful tools within it, like macros, like Microsoft Word's Quick Parts that can greatly speed up document drafting. Quick Parts, for instance, lets you easily save standard clauses and paragraphs to drop them into Word documents or Outlook email as needed. But I find that there's actually a lot of resistance to document assembly, partially on the grounds that you can do the work faster, and therefore, if you're still using the billable hour model, you're going to make less money. That's absolutely right. At some point, you have to recognize that as a business model, you can't do things in an hour that other law firms do in 15 minutes. But you also have to recognize that if you stick with the bill, billable hour model, you're going to be uh, cutting your prices. And yet, there seems to be a happy medium where you can both lower the price to the consumer and have a higher realization rate to you. But Law firms still seem to resist alternative billing as it is labeled or now alternative fee agreements. Do you see more acceptance of this in the firms you work with? Well, I certainly see that alternative fee arrangements is a really hot topic at CLEs, but I think maybe the adoption is slower than uh, is reported in the press. Of necessity, lawyers are moving to AFAs. But some, and maybe the majority, are doing so, I think, reluctantly, whereas I see AFAs with the same excitement of the old adage of, of uh, America, you know, go west, young man. I mean, there, there are riches to be had in figuring out AFAs and using them well, and they carry a distinct competitive advantage. So I think the reluctance is, is, is badly misplaced. I certainly agree with that, and, and I would also tell you that, that the big law firms are feeling pressure from an, an un, unlikely source. The uh, Association of Corporate Counsel has now posted on the web their value challenge, and they talk about proposals to law firms and task-based billing, and, and one of the uh, uh, parts of the value challenge that they're communicating to the big corporations, general counsel offices, who are, of course, hiring outside counsel, is that really to make alternative fee arrangements work, you're going to have to help work with the law firm for them to be more efficient, which is an interesting message coming from, in effect, the client. 
Yeah, I, I was reading a little bit about this too, and, and I hope I'm not treading on some of the stuff you wanted to say here. But but you know, the, the basic premise is that you're going to reduce costs while you increase quality and value. And what I thought was interesting is that they said that the only outlier among businesses are law firms. And, and that's very interesting that we are the only outlawyers. So they also mentioned that while non-law firm costs increased by 20%, over the past 10 years, the large law firm's prices jumped almost 75% in the same period. I mean, there, there's a real disconnect there. So I really like their basic message that you need to get together with the client and the law firm, and they say, meet, talk, act. And, and I think that working together collaboratively, that's a really good way to get to a better, more sustainable place. I think it's going to be a great challenge, and, and I think it's going to be a great opportunity. But Clearly, uh, you know, one of my uh, throwaway lines about document assembly is if we'd been charging by the document instead of by the hours all these years, all law firms would have document assembly software in place and operating. <laughs> yes, they would. <laughs> I think another important thing for law firms, particularly solo and small firms, is planning in advance on how to ramp up and ramp down as work ebbs and flows you can use virtual assistants. There are other methods of outsourcing. There are speech recognition tools, that some of which have a live person doing the transcribing at the other end. It really makes more sense to be able to ramp up when you need help, to slow back down when you don't, instead of maintaining a large payroll that you don't need all the time. You know, that's absolutely true, Jim. The old mindset just doesn't work anymore. And uh, Ernie Svensson, known to many from his Ernie the Attorney blog, had a really great blog post on how he uses these resources to do all the things as a solo that he could do when he was with a larger firm. So he, he says he wants to handle client matters better than he could if he, if he were in a large firm, and he doesn't think that's hard. But the secondary goal he mentions is he wants people to believe that his firm has all the resources of a larger firm and that technology actually makes that pretty easy and fairly inexpensive, which I agree with. And, and that blog post is so interesting, I, I would encourage our listeners to, to read it and we'll include the link in our show notes. I did think it was funny. Uh, you may recall Dustin Hoffman and Little Big Man. I thought it was uh, cute that Ernie entitled his blog post Little Big Firm. <laughs> and yes, such a thing is possible, Ernie. Thank you for pointing that out. It certainly is. And in closing, I want to mention another book that I just became aware of, even though it was published approximately a year ago. The title is The Vanishing American Lawyer, and it's by George Washington University Law School Professor Thomas D. Morgan. I haven't read it yet, but it's going to be on my next Amazon.com order, so we'll see a more perhaps American perspective to some of the things that Susskind talked about. Oh, I have to go order another book now, Jim. Thanks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all, folks, for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy.